name we pray. Amen. Man, thanks so much, Kim. What a great intro. I'm just going to have you come to Sea Life and intro me each week. That's awesome. It's interesting, back when I did uh, youth ministry, I mean, I still do youth ministry. College is just kind of exalted, you know, grown-up youth, right? But uh, Todd and Julie Martin used to work with us, and Todd was always so good at introing um, any guest speaker that we had. So I'd always say, Todd, I need you to introduce him. Why can't you do it? I said, I don't know. I said, you're so good at introducing people. So I've been at TBC now for... uh, This summer is going to be 20 years, you guys. I would have had no idea that I'd be in Temple this long when we came from the Dallas area, but it's become home to us. Um, It's been a good home to us. Um, I did youth ministry for eight years here, uh, moved us into this building. When we got to this building, um, everybody was like, man, I feel like we're being swallowed up inside here. I said, yeah, I know. Give it time. It's going to become normal. And for all of you guys, obviously, this is very, very normal to you uh, now. Um, but I've been doing college ministry now for, for 12 years. It's been a lot of fun. I've got three kiddos. Uh, my son, Alec, um, is now in college at John Brown University. He designs y'all's impact t-shirts and, um, and also does some of the, the video stuff that you guys get to see. He's a very talented young man. I have uh, my oldest daughter, Emma, is a senior at Belton High, and, uh, and then my daughter, Hannah, is a sophomore. Belton High. And that's as far as I'm going to go as in terms of recognizing my daughters because I do not want to embarrass you no matter what, okay? All right? Actually, they're really, you know, I mean, I don't even know that we can claim that they're really mine. A stork dropped them off one day and they were just kind enough to stay and, and be part of the family. So that's what I used to tell um, my, my friends. I'm like, yeah, I don't really go with that mom over there. I was hatched. Thank like, you. Yeah. That was that, but that's the way it worked. Am I embarrassing y'all now? Is it good? Good. But one of the things I love about uh, what I do, college ministry, one of my favorite things to do with people in general, you guys, is sitting with them and hearing what God's doing in their life. Specifically, when I get to hear about transformation that's taking place. I love to hear about the power of God um, in, in the life of somebody. And, and one of the things that I've come to realize is that in your college years, how many of you guys are planning on going to college? Raise your hand if you're planning to go to college. So most all of you guys are planning to go to college. You'll hit it in at some point. How many of you guys are seniors, out of curiosity? We've got several tables here. Okay, cool. So you guys this summer might even come join us a little bit and check out Pulse, which is a, a casual community group that we do, co-ed community group we do in the summertime. But what I love is recognizing that it's when you hit college that you begin to really evaluate so many of the things that you've assumed to be true about the world. And God begins to do this real transformation in your life, making what's on the inside um, come to light on the outside. All the stuff that's inside begins to be uh, seen on, on the outside. As you t- make new choices, as you have new responsibilities and freedoms, God begins to do a work in you and grows you and changes you. And oftentimes, I think students um, really begin to learn things about themselves that maybe they hadn't even seen before, which is, which is exciting. One piece of this that's challenging is this, that when you go to college, oftentimes when you hit that dorm room, you begin to really evaluate the things that you've assumed to be true about 
not, not just every other part of life, but even that about God. The assumptions that you have about God, you begin to examine them. You get, begin to think about them. You begin to realize that many of the things that you've assumed to be, the, to, to be a belief that you have about God really was more what your parents believed or what your youth group believed or what your church believed. You just assumed that these things were true. And then you get there and you begin to try to work them out for yourself. My, uh, my intern this year is a guy named Nathan. He, he's playing the role of Jesus in the, uh, in the UMHB Easter pageant. And like the real Jesus, he gets to pick his own disciples. So he's kind of chosen carefully, prayerfully from among his friends, those 12 guys that would be his disciples. And then he gets together with them once a week. Um, obviously, he sees them you know, regularly in class and out of class and all. But once a week, they get together. And so I came and I spoke with these guys a few weeks ago. And when I was with them, the question that I, that I had for them is, who is the Jesus of the Bible, really? I mean, who is Jesus, really? Because there's, there's a, a lot of ideas out there about Jesus, but, but oftentimes uh, those ideas aren't necessarily the real Jesus. I mean, Jesus gets kind of co-opted by different groups of people when they can see an advantage to uh, talking about him in certain ways. Um, now, these are a little over the top, but let's see if maybe you can see uh, some, some of the things that maybe you've thought uh, about Jesus. Maybe you can think of groups that see him this way. There's the Republican Jesus. This Jesus is against tax increases, activist, judge, activist judges. He's for family values. He's for owning firearms. This is the Republican Jesus, right? There's the Democrat Jesus, and he's the guy that's against Wall Streets, of course. He's against Walmarts. He's for reducing our carbon footprints, um, he's for spending everybody's money and sharing the wealth. There's the Starbucks Jesus who drinks only fair trade coffee, of course, right? He drives a hybrid. He loves to have spiritual conversations sitting there in Starbucks, and he goes to film festivals, right? The Starbucks Jesus. There's the touchdown Jesus. We all know the touchdown Jesus because the touchdown Jesus, he helps Christian athletes always outperform non-Christian athletes. And he's the guy, too, that we can pray to to make sure that our team wins, right? You see the coaches down there praying while the other coach is over on the other sideline praying, right? He's the guy that, that figures out, that determines the outcome of Super Bowls. That's, that's the touchdown Jesus. There's the martyr Jesus. This is, a, this is the good man who died a cruel, cruel death. And we all feel sorry for this Jesus. This is the Jesus that oftentimes we see portrayed in movies, right? In books. Then there's the hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, man. Just, you know, peace, man. Imagine a world without religion. And he helps us understand that all we need is, we just need love. That's all we need to get by. There's the suburban Jesus, and he encourages us to reach our full potential. Go for the stars. Shoot for the stars. You can do it. Buy a boat, right? This is the suburban Jesus. There's platitude Jesus. Platitude Jesus is the Jesus that's really good for Christmas specials that we see on TV. He's great on, cre on greeting cards, even some bad sermons. You know, we see, we see platitude Jesus there in bad sermons. And he inspires people to believe in themselves. And he lifts us up, you guys, so that we can walk on mountains. Jesus, platitude Jesus. There's good example Jesus who shows us how we can help people change the planet and become a better you. Not too far from the uh, Jesus that we see in movies. 
And then finally, there's, this is the one that I always crack up. This is kind of the youth pastor Jesus, the college pastor Jesus. This is the, who's your buddy, Jesus? You know, thumbs up, wink. That's the, uh, the two thumbs up, who's your buddy, Jesus? These are over the top, right? I mean, these are a little bit ridiculous. They are meant to be a caricature. But every one of you guys can picture groups of folks who you go, yeah, that is the way that we kind of embrace Jesus. But the truth is this about Jesus. He will not be put in any category, you guys. You cannot co-opt Jesus for your purposes and your plans. No doubt, he's good, he's kind, he's loving, but he's not tame. He's not tame. He's not safe. And he's going to shake your world up as you get to know him. As you get close to him, as you pursue him, he will. And I tell, I, I, I've always said this, you will not get bored in your pursuit of who Jesus really, really is. And this has always been the case, you guys. This has always been the case. People try to make Jesus something he's not, and then they realize we can't put him in a box. In John chapter 6, it's an interesting time because it's at the peak of Jesus' ministry. He is so popular right now. The masses are coming after him. He's fed the 4,000. He's fed the 5,000. And at the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of John, what we learn is everybody tries to take Jesus by force and make him their king. He evades their grasp. He, he gets loose. We don't know how, what kind of Jesus moves he put on everybody. There's another picture of Jesus, right? You know, the juke and jive Jesus that could escape the grasp of everybody. But he somehow gets away, this mass of people. He sends the disciples across the lake, and then he follows them walking on water that night. But the people are so excited that their bellies have been fed. They're like, man, this is the kind of, of, of king, this is the kind of savior I can get behind. So they go and they find him again, and they get into a heated discussion about just the nature of signs. Give us another sign. Give us another sign every day. How about a sign of you give us food? We can get behind that kind of a sign, Jesus. And this thing gets more and more heated where Jesus finally is pushed to the point to say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. They're like, what? This is a hard teaching. And it says that the masses quit following him that day. And he turns to the 12 and he says, what about you? Are you guys going to turn away as well? And they say, where shall we go? Who else has the answers to eternal life, Jesus. Who else? Where can we go? Here's what they don't say. Here's the rest of their thoughts. I am convinced. Jesus, you do not make this easy. I don't understand why you have to make this so challenging, so hard. No doubt he was good. No doubt he was loving. No doubt Jesus was the God they had come to trust. But here's the deal. They recognize Jesus definitely was not tame. He's going to cause you to stumble at times. So sometimes in the comfort of dorm rooms, students begin to wrestle through all the things they've accepted about Jesus because their parents did, because their youth group did, because their church did, and they begin to ask many times some genuine questions about God. They begin to evaluate God for who God says that he is. Or sometimes they begin to walk away from God and not think about him whole lots. 
And this is where rich conversations take place. This is what I love about what I get to do in college ministry, in singles ministry, you guys. This is so much fun to get in these rich conversations. And that's why I direct so many people back to the Gospel of John, because it's in the Gospel of John that you see these rich, rich conversations, not these simple, and Jesus wept kind of moments. I mean, that's important, right? Jesus did weep. He had great compassion for us. But to see those conversations and what's going on. So today, we're going to look at one such conversation. And this is a discussion with a woman who had a daily habit. Think about this, you guys. Follow with me. Her choice was to go get water from the local well at noon, the heat of the day. After everybody else, after the line had all died down, everybody's gone, that's when she chooses to regularly go get her water. Why does she wait? I mean, these, these, if she fills up maybe two small buckets of water to carry back on her shoulder, 30 to 50 pounds maybe of weight in the heat of the day, carrying them back home, why would you do that? And here's the deal. She was tired of the stairs. She was tired of all the whispers. She was tired of all the folks that she knew had already cast her in a particular light and had rejected her, and she, was, she wanted to avoid all that. She was a woman with a past. She had been married five times, and, uh, and she couldn't seem to make marriage work. Now, back in the day, a man could divorce a wife uh, very, very easily for the smallest of offenses. So, so maybe she, she didn't mind her place, you know, out in public and would speak up um, and, uh, and, and challenge even men that were out in public. Maybe that's what was going on and one of her husbands has said, that's enough. Maybe she couldn't bear a child and she was angry at God that she couldn't bear a child and she made sure that her husband heard her complaining that God's not faithful time and time again. Maybe she was too easy with a smile. Maybe she couldn't cook well. A major offense right there, right? Am I right, guys? Sorry, sorry. When we got married, um, Susan uh, will tell you that she was not much of a cook when we got married. Uh, But my wife is an amazing cook. She makes great, great food. After we got through that first lasagna, she wanted to cook me. What's your favorite dish? I said, lasagna. That was back when we were dating. Woo! Mm. But she's become a good cook since then. She really has. Makes great lasagna now. We don't know. She argued maybe too loudly, too quickly with her husband. We don't know, but there had been five of them. But here's this. Hear hear this, you guys. This is a story about longings. It's a story about desire, about desire going unmet, for sure. And it's also a story filled with hope because Jesus is the compassionate shepherd and he made a point to plant himself right here, right at the intersection of their lives so that they would have this chance meeting with this, um, with this group of people. I mean, the Samaritans were outcasts. They were the lowest of the low for the Jews because they had compromised and chosen to intermarry with other races. And this woman was the epitome of them being not only Samaritan, but having, having had five husbands. So here's what I want you guys to do. I don't want you to take long. I want you to read through this section at your table. If you have somebody who can read well at your table, turn, gather together, read chapter 4, 1 through 30. So don't spend a lot of time figuring out who's going to do it. Just start reading, okay? Chapter 4 of John, verses 1 through 30, read quickly, and then we'll spend some time discussing
Okay. Everybody done? Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Okay. So let's let me recap for those of you guys that uh, took the opportunity to pull out your phone to read from Scripture. Right? I get that. Uh, but maybe checked a uh, a text while you're at it and maybe missed something while it was being read. So I'm going to kind of hit the highlights here. So Jesus is tired from his journey. Um, the disciples are tired from the journey. Jesus gets left here at this particular well while they go in for uh, food. They go into town for food, and so they're, they're hungry and they're thirsty. And a Samaritan woman walks by. She comes by uh, to get water, and it is the heat of the day, and Jesus asks her for a drink. She is incensed. I mean, she cannot believe what she's hearing. You, a Jewish man, are going to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? How is it that you ask me for anything? How is it that you believe that there's anything that I can give you a value? So she really is, I believe, incensed that this whole situation is unfolding. So Jesus does over and over throughout this whole narrative. He continually redirects the conversation because she seems to constantly look for these off-ramps, right? She just wants to change the subject. Let's just take this off-ramp over here, take this off-ramp over here, get away from the things that are really making me uh, uncomfortable. He redirects the conversation to that of living water. He says that, um, he talks about the fact that there is living water that I have come to offer you, and this takes care of not the needs of your body, but the needs of your soul, of your spirits, of purpose, of value. That's what living water is all about. And he says that it's a gift. In other words, this is not something that you have a right to because you're a good Jewish person. You have it in with God because you're still a pure breed. This is what? A gift? So nobody has a right to this. It's not earned, and therefore it cannot be unearned. So the woman can't believe um, that Jesus can give any water to her. Why? Why? Why can't she believe that? What's so hard about this idea of him saying, well, I have living water? What, state the facts. What, think about the scene. What does Jesus not have that he would need to be able to get water? He has no bucket. This is really practical stuff. She's like, oh, yeah, you're going to give me living water? Sure. I mean, where are you going to get this water from? And do you think that you're greater than our father Jacob was? What's the answer to that question, by the way? Yes, of course he's, he's greater than their father Jacob. She doesn't know this, obviously, yet, but, but it's a strong implied yes to that to that snarky question that she has. Jesus tells her that that everyone that drinks this water, listen to this, you guys, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst. You're never going to thirst. It's going to well up and become a spring of living water within you. Now, this, this is interesting to her because here's the thing. Having to come to this well every day having to come to quench her thirst and having to do it at the noon hour had come to mean more to her than simply, hey, I'm thirsty. 
This was a reminder of her shame. This was a reminder of all the mistakes and all the bad choices, all the sin that had gone on in her life. Every time she would go to water after everybody else was done and everybody's like, why would you go at this hour? This is crazy. She knew it was crazy. There's no question that she had a thirst. And when she thought of thirst, it was far more than that which would quench um, her, her desire for water. It was her thirst for something far, far deeper. See, she, has, she says, give me some of this water. I want this. And here's something else that's kind of interesting. You have to understand. Jesus says to her, so go call your husband. He's not changing the subject. He's about to do something, to give her something, for a, basically for a family. If you were going to offer some new truth to a Jewish family, even a Samaritan family, you would not do that through the child. You would not do that through the wife. You would do that by calling the head of the household, the one who was responsible, to then evaluate that and give that to the rest of his family. That's why in Scripture oftentimes we see the man come to faith and then the whole household comes to faith. This is good, he says. He deems this is good and everybody embraces it. So this is a natural cultural custom. And he says, being respectful, go get your husband. Uh-oh, we have a problem. I have no husband, she says. Jesus says, this is really true, absolutely, because you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. The man you're with now is not your husband. He's speaking as a prophet through the Holy Spirit, giving him insights. And what does she do? She changes the subject, of course. Now she wants to talk about the nature of worship, where you can worship properly. Now, Jesus discloses to her that God is seeking true worshipers. He wants true worshipers, those that worship in spirit and in truth. And he discloses to her, I am that long-awaited coming Messiah. He who stands before you is he. Because she mentions the Messiah, and he says, I'm that guy The disciples return at this point. She forgets herself. She forgets her bucket. She runs back to tell everyone what she has seen. Perhaps this is the Messiah. Perhaps this is the one who knows everything that I have ever done. And look at this, you guys. Many believe based on her testimony. The testimony of this woman that had found ways to make sure that she didn't have to come in contact with those in the rest of the town. She goes back and begins to tell them about, could this be the Messiah that all of us have been looking for, waiting for the man? And notice her testimony, seven words. He told me everything I ever did. That was her story. That was her testimony. That was the statement of power in her life. And so they placed their trust in Jesus based upon her story. Second-hand faith. Second-hand faith. What I mean by second-hand faith is this. Second-hand faith is when a reporter wants to learn about something that, um, that is going on with a particular person. They can't get to the person, so they go and they talk to the, the parent. They talk to a friend. They talk to a coworker. They talk to a teammate. And they get the story from somebody else about the person that they want to hear about. Right? That's secondhand faith, secondhand information. This is an amazing deal, you guys. Do you know that every single one of us, every one of us has come to faith secondhand? 
As far as I know, unless you guys had Jesus appear to you on the road, you know, somewhere in school, maybe in a hallway, unless Jesus appeared to you and told you the nature of the gospel, that would be firsthand faith, right? Hearing it directly from him. But unless that happened, it was secondhand. Every one of us came to faith secondhand. I watched my mom begin to pick up her Bible and read it and take notes at night. And I remember telling her as a 16-year-old, going, Mom, you're being a fanatic. This is weird. You take Bibles to churches. You don't read them at home. It really, really bothered me. Fast forward several years, and a young lady who was a friend of my girlfriend is telling me about Jesus. And it wasn't long before I put my faith in this Jesus, because I could see the power of God at work in her life. I saw the power of God at work in my mom's life and other people's lives. Second-hand faith. Here's the thing, though. This is oftentimes where faith remains, second-hand. Oftentimes, for years and years, will go by after you guys have had an experience where you have Clearly, you can go back and you can remember what was going on. You can remember what you were thinking. You can remember the decision that you made looking at the life of this one you trusted or these several that you trusted, and you can see the work of God, the power of God in their life. You hear about the nature of the gospel for our sins, his provision, his love, his faithfulness to us, and you can remember the decision you made to trust him. And there it sits, oftentimes, for years, second-hand faith. It's handed down to you by somebody else. Here's the thing. Faith that is never tested, faith that is never tested will always remain second-hand. But when it's tested, when God brings a dilemma in your life, a tough thing in your life, something you don't know how to handle, He wants you to draw close to him and it will become firsthand faith because the truth is faith that is never tested is a faith that is never going to become useful. It's a faith that will never become real. By the way, it's interesting that all this takes place at Jacob's well. Um, I mean, the woman says, are you greater than our forefather Jacob? Of course, the answer is yes, Jesus is, but there's a history here that's really important for us to understand because Jacob was the patriarch that wrestled with God. That was who he was. That was kind of what Scripture tells us about him. His name meant supplanter, trickster. Jacob came out of the womb just behind his twin brother Esau. He was holding on to Esau's ankle. He was almost like, man, if I could have just pulled him back and beaten him out, I would have been number one. Jacob was always looking for the angle. He was always trying to figure out how to get ahead. Jacob knew how to use his wits. One day, Esau's coming back from the big hunt because Esau was the hunter. He's coming back from the big hunt. He's famished, and Jacob has a pot of lentil stew going. Mmm, exciting stuff, right? Lentils are like beans. I don't know why you'd be that excited about it, but he was. He was really, really hungry, and Esau's famished. Give me some stew, and he's like, and Jacob's like, aha, he sees his opportunity, right? He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you a heaping hot bowl of my lentil stew for your birthright, which meant the double portion of the inheritance from our father. And Esau, who lived by his stomach, lived by his appetite, said, okay, sure, sounds good to me, right? And so 
Jacob sets up between these two, now ends up, and there's a lot of enmity between these two. Years and years go by. God has blessed Jacob, but Jacob is now discovers Esau's on his way. He's all, his, his path is going to intersect Jacob's, and Jacob now has an awful lot to lose, an awful lot that he loves. And he wrestles with God that night, you guys. He's at his wit's end. He's out of angles. He's out of all his little devices. The only one he can turn to is God. And it says that he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night and would not let the angel of the Lord go, go, the pre-incarnate Christ, many believe. Until you bless me, where am I going to turn? Who am I going to go to? I need you to bless me. I have nowhere else that I can go. Jacob gets that blessing, and he walks with a limp the rest of his life, and a reminder of the fact that he wrestled with God and would not let him go, because he recognized that the Lord is the only one who's going to protect me, he's the only one who can provide for me, he's the only one that can redeem my life, he's the only one. My question to you guys is this, what about you? I mean, honestly, where you sit today, the things that you're going through right now today in your life, do you own your faith? Is it secondhand faith? It's been sitting idly by? You trust that God is good because you see the goodness in the life of those around you, those that you trust? But you've really never investigated yourself. You've really never wrestled with the Lord yourself over anything. And perhaps right now God has you in a particular dilemma. And you're like, man, I have nowhere else to turn. I've tried every angle. I've tried my own devices. I have nowhere to go. God may be beckoning you. Wrestle with me. Wrestle with me. And your faith is going to grow. Your faith is going to become firsthand. You're going to discover what you really believe to be true about me. You guys... Jesus is not afraid to wrestle with us. He wants us to own our faith. And I, and I do wonder if there are those of you that may even feel like this woman at the well. That, that there, is, there is something that has gone on in your life and there is a shame now that you are terrified of. There is something now that you know others can see. And so you recognize on a daily basis, you wake up and go, yep, that's where it's at but I've got to go back to that place. There's no way around it. I've got to go back to that well. I have to go back to school. I have to go back and be around my team. I have to go back and be with my friends. I have to go back to that well, to that place that I go to. But the truth is, every time I do, it brings me shame. And maybe that's you. And you wonder, man, if I trust God, if I wrestle with Him, if I, if I risk for a minute that maybe He's faithful, is he too going to break his promises? Is he too going to abandon me? And I want you guys to hear this. That is not the truth of who we, of the God we serve. That's not who he is. Remember this as we looked at this story. Let me just point out a few things here. Jesus was the one who planted himself right there. He knew that this was the place he needed to be. He knew this was the people that I would say this. I even wonder if the Samaritans, recognizing how broken their life was, we're looking for the Messiah with greater hunger and greater thirst and a greater desire than those that were considered the pure Jews, right? 
I don't know. But Jesus made a point to be there at the intersection of this woman's life, not her. Jesus is the one that started the conversation. And every time she tries to take the off-ramp, he cuts her off and brings her back into the conversation. Also, Jesus knew her secrets. He knew about her shame, and he was undaunted by that which caused her shame. And Jesus offers a great gift, a life of redemption, a life of purpose, a life of value, to become a true worshiper of God, one who's born of the Spirit, which happens at the point when you come to Christ, but also one who is growing in truth, born of the Spirit, growing in truth. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to present your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You can get up off the altar and walk off of it anytime you want, but as a living sacrifice, you remain on the altar living for God. This is what he calls us to, you guys, to be true worshipers. That's the nature of worship, how we live our life in spirits, keeping in step with the Spirit, and growing to understand who God really is. So this woman hears this man claiming to be the Messiah, and she knows that the time is coming when the Father is seeking true worshipers, but the thing that she is so moved by is this. This is the man that told her everything she ever did in her life. He spoke out her sin. He laid it out there for everybody to see. Not really those two to see. And suddenly she felt something that she had not felt in years. She felt love and she felt hope. It had been awakened when you would have thought, there's no way this can, this can happen. And here's the thing. She can't wait to get back and tell those in her town. And they too, believe me, they're like, this is a woman without hope. This is a woman without love. We've never seen her excited about much of anything and she comes running back to town and talk about her newfound faith, hope, and love. The people can't believe what a miraculous change has taken place. And so they put their faith in Jesus as well. Second-hand faith. This is what it says in, uh, in 439. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Seven words, seven words, but in those seven words, they see hope, they see love, they see a God who has reached out and done something miraculous. Really, perhaps this is the Messiah that has come to her and now to us, but it didn't stop there for them. It didn't stop there. They didn't leave it on a shelf, just kind of sitting there, this, this secondhand faith. It was a faith that was about to be tested because they invite Jesus to stay with them. And he does. For two days, Jesus and the disciples remain there with them. And this is what, this is so interesting. John points this out. This is what he says here. The, in, in verse 442, it says, We no longer believe just because of what you said. They're telling the woman this. No longer just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world because they had sat with him, because they had asked questions of him, because they had wrestled with him, their faith moved from second-hand faith to first-hand faith. Where is your faith? We have a God who loves us. We have a compassionate God. We have a God 
who will meet us at the intersection of our lives and is calling us in the midst of whatever the dilemma is, whatever the the, the difficulty and the pain is, whatever the shame is that you feel in your lives, you guys, he will meet you there and he will love you. Some discussion questions on your table. Let me have you guys take five minutes, look at those, and I don't know if we'll have time to... Well, I'll take a couple of responses from you guys. Take five minutes, look at the questions. I'll tell you what, there's four questions... Pick three. Pick three as a table, and don't spend too long on any one of them. How's that? All right, let me take some responses here just because of time. I want to, we're done at 12.15, right? Essentially. <laughs> Y'all give me to 12.15. So what well do you think most high school students find themselves going back to time and again? Give me some thoughts. Throw them out. I couldn't hear you guys. What was it? Video games? Yeah. Popularity? Yeah, absolutely. There's power in that, for sure. Huh? Video games, popularity, Netflix, you can numb out, right? What else? Athletics, yes, achievement in athletics. A cell phone, always having to stay in touch with social media, always having to stay in touch with your friends. Yeah. Anything else? What, uh, what counsel would you offer somebody who is wondering whether their faith is secondhand or firsthand? If you had a friend who comes to you, maybe some of you guys, even after this talk, walk out of here going, so help me understand this, secondhand, firsthand, what counsel would you give them if they're wondering whether their, their faith is firsthand or secondhand? What would you tell them? It's a little deeper, isn't it? Okay, ask them how they pray. Yeah, is there anything they're really leaning on the Lord for in their life? Yeah, do they really talk to the Lord? Is that what you mean by that, John? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I've said before to, to my college guys, I'm like, and this took me years to realize this, but, but if I don't really pray about anything, I don't know that I'm really exercising much faith at all in my life. Because that, that's the place that requires me, that, 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 that requires a a walk of faith to pray to a God that I can't see. But I take um, in confidence his presence is there. Anything else that y'all would, would say there to a friend who's wrestling through that? What evidence do you see in your life? What activity do you see in your life where you are leaning into your faith, depending on your faith for anything? That would be, that would be the most helpful thing you could tell a friend is... Is, is there a place in your life where you're leaning on the Lord for anything? So what does it mean to be to worship God in spirit and truth? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. 
Okay? So the, there's a sincerity within yourself that you're being honest with God when you're, when you're worshiping Him. Uh-huh. And when you're at church. Does it go beyond that which you do when we come together and sing? Yeah, absolutely. There's a sincerity of how you're living your very life. First Peter makes a huge deal about that. And then finally, what is the danger of simply having secondhand faith that never grows to become firsthand faith? What's the danger in that? There had to be a reason why I wanted to talk on this, right? So what's the danger? It may be a faith that's never tested. How do you know, right? You've had a profession. There's a lot of people that profess Christ, but not everybody possesses Christ. So you may have had an experience that you can point back to, but how do you know that that is legitimate? That's one of the greatest, greatest dangers. And that gets us to places where we have folks that want that a family member passes away, and I'll sit down with the family and say, tell me about this family member. And the best they can do when it comes to the question of, so did they have a faith, is, well, they made a decision back when they were in Sunday school years and years ago. And I'm like, wow, that's the story of faith in their life. Okay. So based on the profession, we can, I can use that in my, in my message when I, when I preach at the funeral, but there's not a whole lot to go on. I hope that you guys, I really do, I hope that you guys press on in your life moving from secondhand faith that's untested, where you're not leaning on the Lord for anything, to firsthand faith, where you're sitting and you're wrestling through the very nature of God, knowing that there's going to be places where you stumble because Jesus is not going to be tamed by you. And the more you grow to understand him, the, the richer the relationship that he, uh, grows and the more you cling to him, not because it's easy to cling to Jesus, but who else has the answers to life? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I, I, I recognize that there are many, many students here that really are wrestling with you. And their faith is being forged, and it's real. And Father, they, they get grace, and they, and they understand that Jesus is not always going to fit in their pocket the way they want him to. And so, Father, I, I praise you for that, and I pray that these guys that even now before they head out to, the, to college and find their spot in their quiet dorm room or apartment, that they begin to really say, man, what is it that I really believe about God? Father, I pray that that would even be going on now in the midst of their friends, in the midst of their family, in the midst of their church, and that these guys would have so many stories about the transformative work of Christ that they tell one another, and it would spur them on to love and good deeds, and it would cause more and more people around them to say, man, I want to wrestle with Jesus in the same way. Father, I pray that for him. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, you guys.